This is The Ethicist, a podcast from the New York Times Magazine. I'm Amy Bloom, novelist and writer-in-residence at Wesleyan University, and along with my co-hosts, we're going to debate and then answer some of the tricky ethical questions Times Magazine readers send in every week. And let me introduce my co-hosts, Anthony Appiah, professor of philosophy at New York University. Hello, Anthony. Hello, Amy. And Kenji Yoshino, law professor at New York University. Hi, Kenji. Hi, Amy. Coming up, we'll tackle reader questions about lying to lawyers, the alternate realities of family life, and repulsive artists and the art they produce. Okay, so here's our first question. I am an attorney who is expected by my firm to bill on average a certain number of hours a day. On some days, for a variety of reasons, I can't hit that number. People who repeatedly miss the daily target get gentle and not-so-gentle reminders from the firm to meet the standard that has been set. My question, is there any ethical prohibition to billing a client for work, say, on a Friday, that I really accomplish over the weekend? They are not paying a penny more, and where and when I do the work really isn't a concern of theirs, I don't think, except in rare cases. Do you see a problem with my solution to this issue? Name withheld. So I went to my colleague, Stephen Gillers, who's an expert on legal ethics, to see if there was a legal rule on point. And he told me that there is indeed such a rule that obtains throughout the United States. And the rule says, quote, it's professional misconduct for a lawyer to engage in conduct involving dishonesty, deceit, or misrepresentation, close quote. So he acknowledged, says Professor Gillers, that the rule could not be read too broadly, lest it bar white social lies. But he also said that it obtained absolutely to any statement that a lawyer makes in a professional context. So he also observed that your claim that you're not harming anyone is immaterial, that the ethics rule forbids dishonesty full stop and not just dishonesty that causes harm. So all that said, we're of course here to talk about ethics, not about legal rules. But Professor Gillers corroborates my ethical intuition in this instance it could be that the firm has a foolish rule uh, and that you should ask them to change it because you might feel like you are permitted to use your weekend hours to um, fill your daily quotas. But it seems wrong to take matters into your own hands in this way, particularly since you don't know what the firm is actually asking you to do by billing in this way. It might be asking to figure out what your efficiency with regard to your um, work is. So you owe both the firm and your client's honesty as a member of the legal profession, which despite all the lawyer jokes of which I've heard, I think all, um, although I'm always uh, open to hearing a new one, uh, I still view uh, this profession to be an honorable one, and you will make it all the more so if you tell the truth in small professional matters as well as large ones. And you hear me betraying a broken windows theory there, where I think that if you start uh, telling small lies, those can easily cascade into uh, larger ones or uh, tell other people around you that um, that larger lies are permissible. I absolutely agree with, with Kenji. And by the way, the Latin for honorable is honestas. <laughs> so honesty and honor are deeply connected with one another. And if it is to be an honorable profession, it's got to start by uh, being one in which uh, lawyers tell each other the truth, lawyers tell their clients the truth, and so on. You can't guarantee that the clients will tell you the truth, but that's because they're not part of the honorable profession. Um, so I do think it's really important. 
that and and as Kennedy says, um, what's at stake here is not just your relationship with your clients; it's your relationship with your firm. They're promoting you, making retention decisions, making salary decisions, and they're doing so on the basis of uh, belief beliefs they have about how you do your work and when you do it and whether you get it in on time and so on. And if you're uh, con- if you're concealing from them facts about this, if you're, uh, it's it, the the issue isn't about, uh, it isn't just about uh, truth to the clients. The issue is about uh, truth in your work. Now, I think the fact that you you're, you're expressing anxiety about this suggests that you are an honourable person. You can see that you ought not to be uh, either misleading your clients or yourself misleading the firm. So, I think uh, you you need to you need to say to the firm, look. Um, I uh, sometimes I can't do the work uh, by 5 p.m. on Friday, so I do it at the weekends. I'm happy to have you bill the clients for work that I do at the weekends, as long as you don't tell them that I didn't do it that I did it during the week. Uh, I'm happy to have uh, an accurate account given to the clients of of how I've done my work, but I'm not happy uh, to let them think that I did it on a Friday if I actually did it on a Saturday. I think that's a really important thing. And if it turns out that you are working for a firm where they aren't going to go along with that, then I'm afraid you're going to have to let the chips fall where they may, and you should probably move on, because they, as lawyers, are under obligations to be honest and honorable too, and you shouldn't be working for a firm that breaches uh, this very, very fundamental professional demand. I don't think there's any suggestion that the firm has any intention of, of, of breaching the demands. I think this is about the lawyer um, understanding what the demands of the firm are and finding him or herself unable to meet them. And I think the idea that, you know, do excellent work supported by your weekend hours and let your firm know and let them decide if they want to keep you under those circumstances. It might be that no one has ever been so straightforward with them. Um, And it might be that your work is much better than most other people's, and therefore they would like to consider this. This seems a little unlikely in a, in a large firm, but it's certainly possible um, that, um, you know, the common sense might triumph. On the other hand, if their greatest concern is your ability to meet deadlines and produce within a certain framework, it seems entirely possible you're going to have to move on. But I agree. I think um, lying is lying, and um, you can't lie to the client. And you can't lie to the people who employ you and still be an honorable person. I think that's that's three for three. Yes. So let's dive into the next letter. My sister has become a personality in the media, primarily due to her colorful past. She gives lectures and has a self-help book coming out soon. One of her minor themes concerns our deceased father and is particularly nasty. Although there is no way to positively refute statements she has made, Neither I nor my two brothers and my mother believe my father capable of the events my sister describes. My father was a kind and giving person. He has living brothers, sisters, nieces, and nephews who loved him dearly and would be very upset by my sister's claims. My husband suggests I confront my sister, but her strong self-interest and argumentative nature will not likely yield a fruitful outcome or change anything, and my concern is to protect positive memories for living family as well as grandchildren who may research my father in the future. I propose to write about him myself, posting my memories on the internet. I have been very upset with my sister over the matter and would not attempt to refute her, merely focus on my father and memories of him. This seems the least aggressive path and least likely to create any stir around my sister or her supporters. Since the internet seems destined to live forever, 
At least an alternative memorial for my father would exist in the ether sphere. Your thoughts are appreciated. Name withheld. There are so many questions I find myself wanting to ask um, to find out more about the sister's personality, her colorful past, the way in which her colorful past is so different than the letters writers, letter writers' colorful past, and the idea that the deceased father and his nasty ways are just a minor theme for the sister is also interesting. I think it's great that you have wonderful memories of your father and that many of your relatives do too. This in no way proves that your sister's claims are false. Period. It doesn't mean that they're true. But if you wish to know, you could ask your sister about what she says took place and you could find out more about it. Or, as your husband says, you could confront her, which I think you very sensibly suggest is not going to yield a fruitful outcome. I don't think that there is any refutation possible about events that, from your description, did not happen to you. I think writing a lovely essay about your father and your fond memories of him is not aggressive, um, although your sister and her supporters may respond to your essay as if it is an attack, and there's no reason for you to concern yourself with their response. You want to write something positive about your kind and loving father and your memories of him that you would like to be able to share with other members of the family and that you hope uh, future generations will turn to, and that's absolutely fine. Um, You don't seem to be interested in a positive relationship with your sister, so you don't have to concern yourself with her response. And again, I would just encourage you to be mindful of the fact that your feeling that he could not have done the things that she describes does not mean that they are not true. So, Amy, I totally agree with the first bit. I think that the dead are helpless in the hands of the living. So it strikes me as profoundly ethical to defend someone who is unable to defend himself. So I see writing a more affirmative account, this is to the letter writer now, of your father to be a no-brainer. But, Amy, my question to you is whether the least aggressive path is necessarily the most ethical one, because... Again, this may be my Pollyannish view of the value of direct conversation. But the direct conversation, in my view, would be even more ethical, at least potentially, because in engaging in that conversation, you give your sister a chance to explain herself, to persuade you, potentially, of the rightness of her recollection. So I'm not assuming that the letter writer is correct in her own recollection of her father. Um, Or Oh, no, I said, if you wish to know... You could ask your sister about what she says takes place, right? If that, you wish to know. But that—that that, I think it's a no-brainer to say, of course, you know, you should be able to create a countervailing account. But if you really view this uh, statement that is being made by your sister as uh, maligning your dead father, then why can't you invite a conversation? And in fact, shouldn't you invite the direct conversation? Uh, not least because your own views may be transformed just as much as her views may be transformed. Yeah, I do think that it's worth bearing in mind that there's a, there are sort of two relevant, important pieces of, uh, of, of general psychological knowledge that are here. One is the thing that you're insisting on rightly, Amy, which is that um, roughly this sort of abuse is much commoner than people who don't who haven't experienced it mostly realize and that somebody can be perfectly nice in all kinds of contexts and still be engaging in 
in um, abuse of a child. So I don't think the fact that nothing happened to you, unfortunately, uh, settles the question, uh, nor does the fact that he, your father was a, a nice guy in many, many contexts and a, a decent person in many contexts. Unfortunately, that's just that doesn't settle the question of whether your sister is right. But the second thing is that uh, which tends in the other direction is that unfortunately false memories of these sorts of events are also quite common and um one thing you can if you if you think that she's wrong one thing you can help her with is by talking to her if you're willing to talk to her and i think if you want to defend your father as i think it would be honorable to do you probably need to talk to her um one thing you can raise with her is the possibility that she's not remembering it right and see how she now, that that's not going to produce, it's not going to improve your relationship, but it's already at a pretty low state as far as we can tell. Um, but I do think that saying to her, look, um, the fact that I don't believe it doesn't mean that it's, uh, doesn't guarantee that it's not true. But the fact that you do believe it doesn't guarantee that it is. And uh, we, we want you to weigh carefully, we, the rest of the family who loved uh, our father and don't frankly believe these things, uh, the rest of us would like you to weigh seriously the possibility that you're wrong, and then you've done, you've done, you, you've raised the question, you've done the best you can, and then you can go and put a memorial on the web. I think I think that that's fine. It seems to me. I don't think these things come out of nowhere. By the way, I couldn't agree with you more about the false memories or even utterly fabricated memories. But um, this has clearly been going on for a while. Um, and when I look into the letter, it says, there's no way to positively refute the statements she has made, although none of us believe that my father was capable of the events my sister describes. So this has been in the family for a while. This is not brand new information. But really what this letter writer is saying is, I want to write my version of my father. I'm not going to argue with my sister. I'm going to create my version and my memories, which seems to me to be a perfectly fine thing to do. But I feel that the, a big piece of the middle of this letter is, I don't wish to engage with my sister. I don't want to hear more about what she says happens. And I don't want to argue with her about whether or not it happened. I want to write about my memories of my father. And we're all agreed that that's okay. I think that is fine. I do think that when a claim like this is made in a family, it's important to understand what the person uh, claims happened, and it's important to listen. But this letter writer does not seem interested in doing that. We are on to our last question. Dear ethicists, every so often, my girlfriend and I argue about enjoying entertainment whose creators are unsavory characters. She disapproves. For example, I love Woody Allen movies. Even after I became aware of disturbing allegations about him, I had no problem watching his movies because, as I told my girlfriend, I was able to separate the art from the artist. This separation is harder in cases like the boxer Floyd Mayweather, subject of our most recent disagreement. His violent form of entertainment is evocative of his terrible past behavior, too close for my girlfriend's comfort. And, to be frank, some of Woody Allen's more recent movies showcase intimate asymmetrical relationships between older men and younger women, which are unsettling given the accusations against him. Is it ethical to consume entertainment created by people whose personal conduct is repugnant? What if that entertainment is related to their bad behavior? Is it enabling them, if I pay to consume, what they create? Alec B., New York, New York. 
So this question uh, is actually three questions, and they I think they conflate a bunch of different issues. So, is it ethical to consume entertainment created by people whose personal conduct is repugnant? It had better be, <laughs> because otherwise we couldn't consume most entertainment. Uh, some of the most valuable, ent- and I'm not just entertainment. Um, uh, Kant was a racist. That doesn't mean that as a philosopher I can't read him. So I think that question is that's sort of an easy question. Uh, what if that entertainment is related to their bad behavior? Well, um, uh, relate. What does that mean? Related in what sense? Uh, uh, if and here, I think there's a genuine anxiety, which I would like to put like this. Um, sometimes, when you learn something about the uh, someone who made a book or or a, or a film or a painting, you you th- you see in the painting evidence that they. Of the of the sort of badness about that is uh, evident in the biographical fact, it's a it's a hint as to something wrong in the work itself. Now, I do think there is something uh, to be done to protect yourself, as it were, from artworks that uh, constant exposure to which can, as it were, spoil your spoil your mind, spoil your responses, make you shallower or or less. Uh, sharp on some topic and so i I think sometimes when you see uh, somebody doing something outside the work that suggests it may suggest to you wait a minute this guy beats women up and i'm watching him beat men up maybe uh, there's something to be said about whether you want to spend your time watching people beat each other up maybe uh, however gracefully and great uh, they, they seem to be doing it and I think that instinct, that instinct that sometimes uh, when we when we are experiencing uh, works of entertainment, are, we're being in a certain way polluted by them, um, is an instinct that I have about lots of things. It's certainly one of the reasons why I'm no expert on reality television. It's because I have the sense that the the shamelessness, for example, that seems to be encouraged by that is a bad thing and that spending your time living with shamelessness or representations of shamelessness can make you care less about these things, less about honor. So um, so I think that's a reasonable worry, but it's not a worry about enabling, which is the, which is the third question. If it were the case that there was some form of abstinence, some removal of yourself from uh, an audience that would actually stop someone doing a bad thing, well, that would be something to consider. But that's absolutely not the case with Woody Allen or Floyd Mayweather or most reality television. Right, and so you could be active against domestic violence. And that might be a more important thing to do than whether or not you watch Floyd Mayweather on TV. But I also really like your point about what it does to us as viewers or readers to engage in, um, in, in things that emphasize um, sort of, you know, the shallow and the glorification <clears throat> of a lot of unpleasant things, including violence and shamelessness and dishonorable behavior. The impact that it has on us in the long run is also something to pay attention to. Yeah, I'm sure we each have our pet uh, individual repugnant uh, artist or philosopher, so I keep thinking of Rousseau (laughs) in this context. (laughs) And so I asked myself a train of questions, uh, because I also agree that there were a nest of questions in this query. So first, you know, is it ethical to consume work created by people whose personal conduct is repugnant? You know, so when I think of Rousseau, you know, whose work has been so helpful to so many people, you know, 
this is a guy who handed his kids over to orphanages. So, you know, obviously, as Anthony was saying, the answer has to be uh, we have to be able to use that work. And then this is even true to um, Anthony's second point, if the work is related to their bad behavior. Uh, so when I think about Rousseau's uh, treatises on how to educate children, right, uh, they're actually quite uh, powerful and edifying, uh, even though he didn't do well by his own children. I, I think it's a adage, uh, you know, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that um, no philosopher is what they write about, right? So that it, there's almost an inverse relationship between uh, the aspirations uh, articulated by a philosopher and uh, their own personal conduct. And while you are enabling them in a kind of de minimis way by consuming their creations, um, it, it, what they do with their money, I think, is ultimately less important than what you do with the work, right? So here, again, I would think of what you do with Rousseau's work is much more important than whether or not you're supporting you know, his estate or his publisher or, or, or whomever. And so I really come down with a kind of through line also in listening to my colleagues, which is that to the extent that there's a problem here, it is a problem with the work itself and that your knowledge about the author is allowing you to see the work in a different light such that the work is of less value to you and you wish to turn away from the work. So I would want to drive a really uh, sharp wedge in between the creator uh, and the work itself and to say everything here turns on whether you think that the work itself is valuable or not. And that valuation may be inflected by your understanding of the author, but the ultimate metric has to lie with how you regard the work itself and not the author. I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. I think it's right whether it's um, a television show or Rousseau or Kant or Colette. I think um, the important thing is to assess and think about your response to the work. And that's it for The Ethicist. If you'd like to send us your ethical quandary or comment on the show, you can reach us at ethicists at nytimes.com. If you'd like to leave a voicemail question for us to answer on the show, the number is 212-556-7070. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us in iTunes. Our producer is Carrie Hillman, and the music is by the band Broke for Free. For Anthony Appia and Kenji Yoshino, I'm Amy Bloom. We'll talk to you next week on The Ethicists.